0: Father, as we come to your word today, we ask for illumination. We ask for understanding. Father, grant us of the sight of Christ and our need for him in this text today. Grant us an understanding of our desperate need to bring our needs to you and to trust all things in your hands. Father, give us clarity of mind. Give me clarity of speech. And Lord, may this glorify You. As we understand Your Word, we pray that it would do Your work in our lives. That it would increase our confidence in You, our our trust in You, that we would be sanctified and that Christ would be glorified. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Luke, Luke chapter 18. If you got one of the Bibles from out in the foyer, it's on page 877, Luke chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 8 today as we continue in our series. The the first Sunday of each month, we are looking at a parable. The other Sundays of the month, we are in the book of Genesis. Um, You guys probably noticed today that Christina is not here. Uh, she is out of the hospital, but she is still down and out. The only thing that's really changed between the hospital and, and today is the fact that she has stabilized. She, she is no longer getting worse and worse. She's taking baby steps and getting better. But I wanted to thank you guys for your prayers for her. In fact, prayer is... Uh, our, our most desperate need uh, for Christina. And in fact, prayer is what we're going to be talking about today. That's actually the subject uh, at hand in this parable that we're going to be looking at today. And prayer is one of those weird things. There are a lot of different ideas about prayer and what prayer is and what prayer does and, and even even how to pray. Prayer is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith because On one hand, we have a God who is sovereign. He is absolutely sovereign. He is absolutely all-knowing. He knows all things, past, present, future. He's all-knowing. We believe in a God who is all-powerful. We believe in a God who does not change. And given the fact that He never changes, there are a few very important things that we can infer about Him. We can infer, first of all, that He never learns anything because that would be changing. He knows everything from eternity. He has ordained and decreed everything from eternity. We can infer that He never learns anything. We can also uh, you know, say, hey, that works really well with His all-knowingness. We can also infer that the things that please Him will not change. Because God does not change, the things that please Him will not change. Faith has always been the thing that pleases God. It always has been, it is now, and it always will be the thing that pleases God. God doesn't change. He doesn't change His mind. And yet, this is where it gets difficult. This is where the tension lies. This is where the mystery is. Here's a God who doesn't change, that we believe in, that we worship, and yet He tells us to come to Him in prayer. He tells us to bring our desires, our requests, our needs to him. But prayer' is difficult. And maybe it's because we have a high view of God's sovereignty that for, for me anyway. It, it makes prayer kind of like, man, well, okay, I, I want to pray. it could be because, because I want to be obedient to God, but at the same time, I know that He knows what I'm going to say, so do I really have to say it? And so prayer becomes something of a battle for even the person who has a high view of God's sovereignty. But make no mistake about it, prayer is something that we need, and that's why God actually instructs us to do it. It is a privilege to pray, absolutely. It is a privilege that we can come before the throne of grace and present our needs, present our requests, but it is also an issue of obedience. Because it is something that God has told us, has instructed us to do. But it's a battle. Because sometimes you will pray, and it feels like nothing happens. Worse than that. Sometimes you will pray, and you will see things just get worse and worse and worse. If you have ever been tempted to give up on praying because you don't see God answering your Prayers and your petitions, the way that you had thought, maybe it seems, maybe it feels like your words are just falling into the silence. If that's the way you've ever felt, you are not alone. Over the course of the past two weeks, uh, I have spent a lot of time in prayer, uh, more time in prayer than I've spent in a long time, simply because I didn't know what else to do. You guys probably know two Thursdays ago, I had to rush Christina to the emergency room. She had uh, a case of pancreatitis, and it was kind of hectic and a, a little bit scary in the emergency room if i 'm being perfectly honest because as the doctors were trying to diagnose her they 're mentioning everything from gallstones to liver failure to cancer they're, they're just and they 're throwing this stuff out there. It was a young doctor who didn 't know to, to keep those things hush hush from the patient and, and so i 'm hearing all these things i 'm saying. My only option here is just to pray. It's just to pray. It forced me to my knees, so to speak. And so I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed for for days. And the, the thing is, as I was praying, I wasn't seeing any improvement in Christina's condition. In fact, she was just getting worse and worse and worse. Last Saturday night, she hit the kind of the, the height of, of her uh, of her suffering of her condition, where her, her pulse went to over one thirty and her oxygen levels dropped and she didn 't even tell me about it because she knew I had church on Sunday morning, but I knew when I didn 't hear from her, I knew that something was was wrong. The truth is. You know, while I was praying and I was, and I was trusting in, in God to hear my prayers and to answer my prayers, we don't always know exactly how God's sovereign, immovable, unchangeable plans interact with our prayers to God for Him to act on our behalf. We don't know how those two things exactly work together. Like with election, there's a great veil of mystery about it. God works out all things in accordance with His own perfect, sovereign will. We believe that, but at the same time, James reminds us that sometimes we have not because we ask not. And sometimes we have not even though we've asked because we asked with the wrong motivation. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught this. Matthew 7.11 He said, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? We're not sure exactly how that works with His unchanging plans and His unchanging sovereignty, but there is some kind of interaction there. The truth is that sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers the way that we think He should. Sometimes He doesn't answer them as quickly as we would like. Sometimes He doesn't answer our prayers. Prayers at all if we're asking for the wrong things or in the wrong way with the wrong motivation. And because of our own short sightedness in this matter, Jesus told a parable that came to be known as the parable of the persistent widow. It's found in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. And the central point of this parable is that we must not grow weary. We must not grow discouraged. We must not become jaded when it comes to prayer. Rather, we must remain both faithful and persistent. So we start with verse one. Matthew uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Luke tells us this. He says, And he, speaking of Jesus, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So we are immediately told what the entire purpose of this parable is. The point is that we ought always to pray and to not lose heart. We can't allow ourselves to become discouraged, even when it feels like our prayers are falling on deaf ears. And we must not despair, because when you despair, despair is ultimately when you have given up on God. That's what despair is. And so despair is actually a sin. And you, you hear Paul talking about the affliction and the, the, the trials and tribulations that he and his people, uh, his, his ministry team had to go through. And they said, we don't despair. In other words, we, we haven't given up on God. And that's what happens when we despair. We must not despair. One of the things that will cause you to despair, one of the greatest dangers that we face when it comes to prayer, or just when it comes to the Christian life, is listening too closely to your emotions. If you want to know one of the quickest ways to become discouraged, one of the quickest ways to reach despair, one of the quickest ways to become a heretic, is to follow your feelings, to let your feelings shape your thoughts and ideas about God. So let your, your feelings shape your theology, your understanding of God. Because the truth is, our feelings don't always lead us to truth. More often, they lead us away from the truth. The heart is deceptive. And that's what the feelings are included in. But the truth is that God didn't just give you a heart. He gave you more than a heart. He also gave you a mind. He didn't just give you emotions. He also created you to be rational. He designed us with a system override, so to speak, where our mind can veto what our heart might be telling us. And one of the things that we always want to do when we study a parable is to be rational. Is to be rational. We we want to look at the parable not only in itself, but we want to look at it in its greater context. We want to see why Jesus is even telling the parable that he's telling. And verse 1 tells us, right? It tells us what this parable is going to be about, right? Yes, but we need to look beyond that. We want to ask a few more questions like, why does Jesus take this moment right here to tell them to pray? with persistence. Why is it that he did it right here? Why not later? Why not earlier? And looking back at the previous chapter, isn't this interesting? If you look back at the previous chapter, you'll see that the parable was preceded by a discourse on the end times. He has this whole eschatological section, a pretty brief discourse, leading right up to verse 1. Look at chapter 17, verse 30. He says, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. He's talking about the end of the world. He's talking about His second coming. Right after giving this this somewhat brief discourse on the second coming in which Jesus talked about the future day in which the Son of Man is revealed, He gives us this picture of, of the wicked being wiped off the face of the earth in judgment. Jesus then encourages His disciples not to lose hope in their prayer. It's after telling them about the end of the world that he says, keep praying. Don't despair. Don't get discouraged. Don't get jaded toward God. Pray with persistence. Don't get discouraged when it seems like God is silent. Don't give up on God when it feels like He's not doing anything. Always pray and do not lose heart. Do you see why the context here is important? The context is is, is really, really important. Do you see why Jesus takes this moment to tell the parable of the persistent widow? Understanding what led up to this parable gives us kind of a lesson in between the lines, so to speak. The principle is that no matter how difficult a situation might seem, No matter how bleak or how wicked or how evil the times may seem, when it feels like everything's falling apart, when it feels like the world is coming to an end and it's on the cusp of eternal judgment and destruction, God's people, we as Christians, must be persistent in prayer. When your only hope is to pray. And to trust in God. And to trust that He hears you. You've still got your ace in the hole. You've still got your best option on the table. And what a wonderful thing to consider in our day and age. This should encourage us because the truth is we live in wicked, evil times. We've seen the facade and the gloves come off in recent years as our culture has become increasingly hostile toward biblical faith uh, toward biblical christianity look at verse uh, 26 17 verse 26 it says just as it was in the day days of noah well look at verse 28 likewise just as it was in the days of lot now if you know scripture if you know what happened with these two men if you know what kind of cultures they lived in you would have to agree that our culture is becoming increasingly similar to the cultures that those guys lived in. But we must not lose hope. We must always pray and not lose heart. John MacArthur notes, "...this story has a particular application in times like ours. The days are evil. The need is critical." Our praying should be urgent, passionate, and persistent. We must not lose heart. So let's continue. We'll just read through the parable, and then we'll talk about some of the things we see. Starting in verse 2, verses 2 to 8. He, Jesus, He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city, who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he thought to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says and will he not and will not god give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night will he delay long over them i tell you he will give justice to them speedily nevertheless when the son of man comes will he find faith on earth so verse 2 introduces us to one of the two main characters in this parable a judge And this judge is immediately revealed to be a fool. He's a foolish judge. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the first thing we learn about Him is that He has no fear of the Lord. And notice that it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end of wisdom. It's not in between. It's the beginning of wisdom. That's the first step toward being wise. And this judge hasn't even taken that first step toward being wise. This judge is a fool. There is no legitimate worldly wisdom that does not contain, that does not exercise a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord. Without the fear of the Lord, the most that a person can hope to be. Without the fear of the Lord, the most that a person can aspire to be is a fool. But the fact that this judge doesn't fear the Lord tells us more about him than just the fact that he is a foolish judge. Not, what, not the type of quality that you want in a judge, but there's more. He also is not bothered by evil. Imagine a judge who isn't concerned about evil. Proverbs chapter 8 verse 13 says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. So he doesn't fear the Lord, he's he's unwise, and he does not hate evil. That's not the ideal description of a judge by any means. If a person doesn't fear the Lord, they just will not hate evil. And that doesn't mean that they're going to be neutral toward evil either. There is no being neutral toward evil. Evil is one of those things that you either love or you hate. And so we immediately learn that this judge is not only a fool, but he's also a sinner who is completely corrupt. In addition to his foolishness and his corruption, Jesus tells us he doesn't respect man. Notice it doesn't say that he doesn't fear man. It says he doesn't respect man. And in one sense, you might be thinking, well, that's good not to, for a judge to not be a respecter of, of persons in the sense that that might imply that he's... Unbi- uh, you know, unbiased or, or impartial or, or neutral. As, as you know, impartial as a judge could be, perhaps. Uh, and, and that would be a good quality for a judge. But in another sense, and I believe that this is the sense that Jesus is trying to communicate here, it is also a bad thing because it tells us that He has no compassion. He has no compassion toward those who have just causes. He's apathetic toward the needs of people who are destitute, and he, inter- he isn't interested in supporting justice at all. Now, it seems to me that there are really only two reasons that a person would become a judge. The first reason is that a person loves justice. And that's ideal, right? We want a judge who, who loves justice. What, what kind of a person wants to stand before a judge who doesn't love justice or, worse yet, hates justice? So the first reason that a person would become a judge is because they, they love justice. But the second reason is because they love power. So it's either because they love justice or it's because they love power. And in this judge's case, it seems fairly clear that it's the latter, He's a judge, not because he loves justice. He's a judge because he loves power. And to compound, to to exacerbate, to to multiply his wickedness, we see that he's actually completely aware of these qualities. The fact that he doesn't fear God or respect man. He's aware of these qualities within himself. Look at verse 4. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man. So he knows these things about himself he's it, it's not that he's ignorant it's not that somebody just needs to go to him and say hey judge you know you, I've been noticing that you don't fear God and you don't respect man no he already knows that he'd say tell me something I don't know he knows that he is corrupt worse than that he seems to take pride in the fact that he is corrupt now in our day and age, you would think that a judge like this would be all over social media, ideally, at least we would hope. Uh, we would hope that the news would be covering him and you know, exposing uh, his, his, uh, his indifference toward justice and that the public would demand that he would be replaced, but that was not how things worked in first century Israel. For them, for first century Israel, this would have been a common description for a judge, Judges were rich people, they were powerful people, and it's not that they started at the bottom and worked toward the top. No, usually to have a position of influence like a judge would have in first century Israel required that you actually buy the position. You had to bribe somebody to give you that position. So this judge isn't there because somebody thought that he would be the best man for the candidate. He's not there as somebody who is accountable to somebody else. No, this guy is basically untouchable. Judges wouldn't often be replaced. They would sometimes be assassinated, but they wouldn't often be replaced for failing to do their job, for failing to administer justice. And so, for that reason, justice was very hard to come by in first century Israel. Now, one of the probably most common mistakes that people make when they read this parable is they think that this judge is a comparison to God that this judge is a picture of God that he represents God and perhaps in in, in one sense he does in the sense that he's supposed to administer justice he, he's he's the higher authority who's supposed to administer justice maybe in in that sense he represents God but we need to understand that this judge actually isn't being compared to God. He's being contrasted with God. It's kind of one of those uh, how much more types of stories. If, if this corrupt judge who hates justice, who, who, hates, uh, who hates what is good and, and loves evil, if, if he's willing to do this, how much more is a good God who loves His people willing to act on their behalf? and administer justice. In verse 3, we're introduced to the second character of the parable. It's a woman. It's a widow. Now, in first century Israel, this would have represented the most down and out, the most destitute, the most desperate type of person in their culture. She is helpless, And she has nobody to represent her. This is the type of person who would be defrauded. This is the type of person who would be taken advantage of constantly in first century Israel. And that's what apparently happened here. Somebody took advantage of her, and she's seeking justice. She just wants justice to be served. And since there is nobody to represent her, she has to go herself. The custom in their culture was for the husband to go before the judge and to plead for his wife's case. Okay, but she's a widow. And if that was the case, it was the father's responsibility to represent his daughter before a judge. Well, there's no father. Okay, if there's no father, it's the brother's responsibility to go before a judge. There's supposed to be a male who goes before the judge and represents her, but what we see here is that there is nobody, no male who is available to represent her. She is completely alone. And as a widow, that puts her in a very, very desperate place. Nobody is seeking justice on her behalf. So she has to do it herself. And Jesus uses a widow as the main character of this story because the Old Testament is so explicitly clear on how widows are supposed to be treated. Listen to what we read in Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 to 24. God says to his people through Moses, he says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear them. I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. And that's just one of many passages, but this one I think tells us that God takes justice toward widows really seriously. He says, if you're not going to administer justice to widows, I'm going to make your wives and your daughters into widows. And then we'll see how you like that. Now, this is like I said, this is only one place that we find this. We see this kind of thing throughout the Old Testament. Instruction to take care of the widows. To take care of people who are hopeless. Take care of the fatherless. Take care of the widows. Because these would have been the most helpless, the most deprived, the most abused, the most overlooked, the most powerless people in their culture. And so, widows were supposed to be cared for. Not only by the community, but especially by the community leaders, and that would include judges. They were supposed to look after the needs and the interests of the widows. All this woman wants is justice. That's all she's asking for. She's not asking for special treatment. She's not asking for things that she feels entitled to but actually isn't no she just wants the judge to do his job she just wants the judge to administer justice and do the right thing and so she comes to him and she begs and she pleads her own case before him and he says get out of here and she leaves and she comes back and she begs and pleads her case again and again he says get out of here And so she leaves and she comes back again and begs and pleads her case and she she comes back repeatedly. And this judge completely lacks compassion. And his lack of compassion is contrary to everything that God has commanded in terms of how a widow should be treated. But this judge is wicked. This judge loves evil. This judge is diabolical. He's cold-hearted. But even this kind of judge who's so evil, who's so wicked, who's so corrupt, eventually reaches the end of his rope and gets tired, gets sick and tired of this woman coming and pestering him, coming and bothering him. And notice that the story's turning point isn't when the judge has an aha moment. It's not like he suddenly comes to his senses and says, what am I doing? I, I, I haven't been doing my job. I, I need to administer justice here. He doesn't come to his senses. He doesn't recognize the error of his ways. He doesn't reach the point where he realizes how foolish he's been or how cruel he's been or how inept he's been as a judge. He doesn't repent. No, he's just sick and tired of this woman bothering him. Of this woman getting up in his face and presenting her case to him. And so the judge decides to administer justice, not because it's the right thing to do, but because he wants her to just go away and leave him alone, and that's going to be the only way to do that. The point of this story is not that God wants to be left alone. And so if you bug him enough, if you pray enough, he'll answer you just so you'll leave him alone. That is not the point of this story while the judge doesn't represent God in the strictest sense in this parable, the widow does represent you and me, pretty closely. She represents any of God's children who would call out to God in prayer. The point is that even if this, if if, if even this unjust, this God-hating judge will give justice eventually to a widow who's persistent in in petitioning him for justice, how much more will God? who loves His people, who looks out for the interests of His people, who protects His people, how much more will God hear and answer their prayers? The point here is that we must not grow weary. We must not grow discouraged. We must not grow jaded when it comes to prayer. Rather, we must remain both faithful and persistent. God is not like this unjust, corrupt judge. No, God is compassionate toward the weak. God is compassionate toward the powerless. God is merciful toward the destitute. People like you and me. But we must see that one of the principles that's found in this parable is that God hears the prayers of some people and will answer the prayers of some people. It doesn't say that he will find uh that anyone who petitions him for anything find favor in his eyes. Look at verse 7 with me. Chapter 8, verse 7. Jesus says, and will not God give justice to whom? His elect. To whom will God listen? To whom will God grant justice? Who will he not delay giving comfort to? The elect. His people. Only his children may approach the throne of grace, with confident assurance that their prayers will be heard and answered. You see, the truth of the matter is, God is not the Father of all men. Jesus had an encounter with some Jews who said, oh, you know, we're we're children of God, we're children of Abraham. And he said, no, you're children of the devil. God is not the Father of all men. He is the Creator and the Sustainer of all men, yes. But He is only a Father to those who have placed saving faith in Christ Jesus. And it's not that the prayers of those who are unsaved or or not regenerate fall on deaf ears. Later on in this chapter, Jesus is going to tell us what kind of prayer God will hear and answer from such a person. He's going to tell the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. the the, the parable where the the Pharisee and the tax collector go to, to the temple. The Pharisee goes into the temple, and he basically says this prayer where he says, God, thank you so much for not making me like this bozo back here, this tax collector. Thank you that I'm the kind of person who does all the things that you require in your law. And that's contrasted with The bozo back there with the tax collector who won't even dare come near the temple. Instead, he stands in the distance, beating his chest, repenting of his sin, and he says, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And according to chapter 8, verse 14, that's the kind of prayer that God will hear from somebody who isn't saved. God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. So this parable is not teaching that God will answer the prayers of anyone and everyone but we also must understand that this parable isn't teaching that god will give you absolutely anything that you ask for if you will just be persistent enough for example let's say that you pray for god to give you something let's say that that you pray oh just for something random we'll say for a jet plane a private jet plane There is no guarantee that God is going to give it to you if you will just be persistent in prayer. God won't be mocked. God won't be manipulated. And it's entirely possible that if you're praying for a private jet and you happen to get it, it's because it's God's judgment against you, because you have idolized that thing that you've been asking for. Now, the context tells us what Prayers, what types of prayers Jesus is talking about, that what what type of prayers these would concern? It would be for Christ's return. It would be for Christ's return. If you will pray for Christ's return, guess what? That question or that that prayer will be answered someday. That prayer will be answered even if his return turns out to be further in the future than we'd like, or fulfilled at a time further away than we would desire or expect until then we must pray with the apostle john who wrote in revelation 22:20 amen come lord jesus so what can we pray for knowing that god will in some way answer I think we have to start with 1 John 5, verse 14. Listen very carefully to this. Because people want to know, you know, how can, I, how can I know that God's going to answer my prayer? The answer is 1 John 5, verse 14, which says this. It says, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So how do we know that if, we pray something, it will be answered. If we're praying according to His will. Okay, so how do we know what God's will is? To understand His will, to know what His will is, we have His Word. His Word reveals His will. So, you can pray for a private jet until you're blue in the face, but there is not one verse, there's not one passage, there's not one word in Scripture that promises that if you will be persistent in asking God for a private jet that he will do it that he will give it to you talking about God's will and knowing God's will we want to look for verses or passages that talk about God's will consider 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 we read this for this is the will of God that should get our attention for this is the will of God your sanctification that is God's will. How many of you guys know that that is God's will for your life, that you would be sanctified? And you might ask, okay, well, what does it mean to be sanctified? To be sanctified ultimately means to grow in the likeness of Christ. That is God's will for you. And if you pray for that, if you are a Christian and you pray for that, that, question, that, that uh, petition, that, that prayer will be answered positively. God will make you more like Christ. Christ. In fact, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29 says that God's causing all things to work toward that end. God is causing all things to work for his glory and for the sanctification of his people. Sanctification is God's work in us, whereby he makes us more like Jesus. And sometimes that includes suffering, sometimes that includes hardship and affliction. But that is God's desire for every single one of His children. And make no mistake about it, friends. You should be praying for your sanctification. You should be praying that God would use your circumstances to sanctify you. When you are in trouble, when you are in distress, when you are in affliction, when you're being afflicted, if you will pray for this, God will answer that. I can't even tell you guys how many times over the course of the past two weeks, this has been my prayer. In fact, I would say this has been my primary prayer while Christina's been in the hospital. My prayer sounds something like this. God, will you please heal her? But if that's not your will, above all, will you please sanctify us in this situation? Will you please make us more like Jesus in this situation? I don't know if His will was to heal her or not to heal her, but I do know that His will was for this situation to teach us to trust more in God. And that's how it is for every one of you. Whatever, whatever the situation may be. Maybe it's a cancer diagnosis. Maybe it's a foreclosure on your house. maybe whatever, It's a car accident. If you would pray this, God, I don't know what your will is for the outcome of this situation, but I do know that you desire for me to be sanctified. I do know that you desire for me to be more like Jesus. And so if I must suffer, Lord, grant me the strength and the wisdom to suffer for the glory of Christ. And that was my prayer, for the most part, for the past... Couple weeks. Why? Because I know that that's a prayer that God will answer. And He did answer. Now, as a general rule, when you're talking about God's will, God's will is that His people would grow in Christ's likeness, that they would grow in holiness, that they would grow in godly virtue, and by growing in those things, that they would become more like Jesus. So anything that serves as a legitimate means toward that end is God's will. And anything that obstructs that or anything that hinders that or anything that is completely against that is not His will. And let's be perfectly honest about that private jet. There's a good chance that it would actually hinder your growth in godliness. Now somebody may say, well, you know, okay, so this is great on a on a theological level, but what about on a practical level? Because I'm, you know, I'm considering a, a job change, or I'm considering getting a new house, or I'm considering, you know, this person as my as my spouse. How do I know what God's will is for practical things like that? And in response, I would say, first of all, you want to make sure that whatever you do isn't going to be something that hinders. Your growth in Christ's likeness. You want to make sure that none of the options that you're considering would explicitly violate, would, would, would go against what God has explicitly revealed in His Word about His will. You know, you don't need to think too hard uh, about whether or not God wants you to switch careers to become a scam artist. Why not? You know, why doesn't God want you to become a con man? You know, know, somebody comes to you and says, I think God's calling on my life is for me to steal from people. You can, with confidence, say, no, it's not. And I know this because the Bible says, thou shalt not steal. I mean, it's as simple as that. So you want to make sure that whatever options you are pursuing don't explicitly violate God's Word. Generally speaking, the rule of thumb would be to Pursue something that you know would not hinder, would not inhibit your walk with Christ. Something that may even promote your walk with Christ or advance your growth in Christ's likeness. Now, let's be honest. Getting an increase in salary could be a good thing. But it could also be something that inhibits or or hinders your growth in Christ's likeness. If what you pursue wouldn't hinder or obstruct or or, you know any of those things hold you back from growing in Christ's likeness then proceed prayerfully trusting that if God doesn't want it to happen it won't and that's kind of scary huh thinking, okay, well, I'm just going to proceed prayerfully, not knowing if this is God's will, but let's think back. Think about Paul. When he's writing to Romans, to the Romans, he's saying, um, you know, I've desired to come and see you. I wanted to come and see you. For years, he wanted to go and see the Romans. Why did it never happen? It kept getting blocked. Why did it never happen until the end, until he went to jail? Because that God's will was that it wouldn't happen yet. Think about what Luke says of Paul's missionary journeys in Acts chapter 16, verse, verse 6, where he writes, And they, speaking of Paul's ministry team, the missionaries, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in, uh, in Asia. Verse 7 And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So here they are. They're pursuing something godly. They want to do something right. right? They want want to preach the Gospel in these areas where the Gospel hasn't been preached yet. They want to go into these areas. That's a good thing. You would think that that's God's will. And so they are proceeding prayerfully and it doesn't happen. Why? It tells us why it doesn't happen. Because God doesn't let it happen it was against the will of the holy spirit it was against the will of christ for whatever reason and we don't have to know what that reason is we just know that that was his will at that time it wasn't for them to do at that time so this is where we have to understand that god has a moral will that's where you would say you know thou shalt not or or do this or don't do that that's his his moral will he also has what's called a permissive will and that's where you have to understand that if God doesn't want you to do something, it ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen if it's something that doesn't violate his moral will. If it's just kind of, kind of open, if God doesn't want it to happen, it's not going to happen. So for a morally neutral decision like a job change or, or buying a new house or whatever, proceed prayerfully. Yielded to the Lord, trusting that He will prevent what He will prevent, and He will allow what He will allow. And finally, consider what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 39. Jesus says this. He says, and this is the will of Him who sent me. That should get our attention, right? Here it is. God's will. This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. What's he talking about? He's talking about his people. He's talking about the people that the Father bring to him. And he says God's will is that I don't lose even one of them. And I will raise them up on the last day. If you pray for that, if you pray that Christ would Strengthen your faith and that He would not lose you. That He would raise you up on the last day. That prayer will be answered. He continues in the next verse. Verse 40. And this is an important one. He says, For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. There's God's will. That you would look to Christ. That you would trust in Christ. And that Christ would raise you on the last day. That's His will. That's the Father's will. If you have never believed in Christ, this is where it starts for you. If you have never repented of your sin and turned away from your sin and... Turned away from your your self-sufficiency and your complete view of self-autonomy. If you've never repented of those things and put saving faith in Christ, this is the first thing you need to worry about. About God's will. You don't need to worry about His will. About anything else until you have addressed this first issue. This is square one. This is where it has to start. God's will... If you are not in Christ, if you have never trusted in Christ, God's will is that you would look to Christ and believe in Him. And then we'll deal with the other stuff. We'll deal with the stuff, the other issues of His will further down the road, like being sanctified. But if you have never put saving faith in Christ, if you have never trusted in Christ alone, He is the only mediator between man and God. There is only one God. There is only one mediator. And that is Jesus Christ. God's will, if you have never trusted in Him, is that you would trust in Him alone. As James Montgomery Boyce said, he said, God, quote, will not teach you spiritual calculus until you have mastered rudimentary math. If you're not in Christ, if you have never trusted in Christ, until you do this much, you're spiritually dead. Until you do this much, You are God's enemy. Until you do this much, you are under God's wrath. Until you do this much, all you can look forward to is God's judgment upon you. We don't know exactly how God's sovereign, unchanging plans interact with our prayers for God to act on our behalf. But we do know that He instructs us to pray. And we do know that He works out all things according to to His own perfect sovereign will. And as a Christian, one of the goals for you individually is for you to get sanctified to the point where you're willing to say, that's enough. That's good enough for me. It's good enough for me that I know that God is sovereign and works all things out according to His will. So pray. Like this widow. Pray. Be persistent. Know God's will. Pray that. But if there's anything beyond that, pray for, pray for that. Pray for things that aren't explicitly outlined that we should pray for in Scripture. If you have a, de- a desire, if you have a need, pray for that. Be persistent. But know God's will. And if there is anything that you ask... Ask with the right motivation. As you grow in Christ's likeness, the things that you once desired will be replaced by the things that God desires. And so your natural prayer will be to pray, Thy will be done. So may God grant us the grace and wisdom to pray in accordance with His will. For the glory of Christ, which is also His will. And that we would do so with persistence. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, that Your work of sanctification is done, at least in part, by studying and understanding Your Word. And so, God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the work that it does in our lives. Thank You for our daily bread. Thank You, Lord, for doing what needed to be done to reconcile sinners. Father, thank You for sending Your only Son to take our sin upon Himself and to give us, in exchange, His righteousness, that we would be in right standing before You. Father, our prayer is that you would teach us to become more and more like Christ. Lord, we we do have prayers. We do have desires. We do have needs. We know that you know them all. But Lord, may our greatest desire be to submit ourselves more fully to you and to become more like Christ for his glory. We pray in his name.